Hello and welcome back to the Talk Evidence, your periodic look at the world of evidence largely dominated by COVID, but with some little bits of other evidence sneaking in on top. So whether you're looking for some CPD on evidence that might shape your practice or you're on the lookout for some papers um, to take to some academic setting to make yourself sound very intelligent, we're here to try and help you. Um, Spring is in full swing here in the UK and everything's looking quite hopeful for us. The schools are open, COVID's dropping and vaccines are rising. But across the world, it's a very mixed picture. And we know that particularly in Canada and in India, things are very tough. And our thoughts are with the people and clinicians working there, um, doing their best. We've got a little mix quite a satisfying mix I think of the spectrum of COVID here. We're going to look a bit at long COVID after hospitalisation. We've got some real world data on vaccines and rare adverse events. We're going to look at how well the UK have been adhering, I hate that word but it's in the title of the paper, to the test trace and isolate system and looking beyond COVID um, we're going to look at treatments for depression in people with dementia. Who's with us? Uh, we've got our regular guest, Joe Ross, US research editor for the BMJ. And from his appearances on the show so far, we have learned that he loves big data. He's got teenage children. And uh, do I call you an internal physician? I always like that title. I think it's so much more glamorous than GP. Uh, well, well uh, we use the term internist. Uh, internist, yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, but I like to identify as a primary care physician, which is how I trained here in the US. Okay, we'll identify you as that. And we've got a surprise for you. We've got a new guest, a new editor-in-chief of BMJ EBM Journal, um, Juan. Hi, Juan. Hi, how are you doing? We're very excited to have you, and particularly coming to us from one of my favourite cities in the world, which is Buenos Aires. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and our listeners? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a family physician here in a, in a private practice in Buenos Aires. My... My primary interest in research relates to evidence-based medicine, uh, evidence synthesis, and knowledge translation. And uh, this is the first time I'm in a podcast, so <laughs> let's see how this plays out. You yeah. will yeah. be gentle with you, and our <laughs> listeners will be patient with you. And um, Duncan, who's sitting quietly, will edit us where necessary. <laughs> <laughs> we should start with long COVID because there's been huge interest in this research paper online um, which we published just at the end of March and it kind of falls under the general purview of long COVID um, looking at signs and symptoms more than 12 weeks after infection which are not otherwise explained or at least that's how NICE defines it in the UK um, and this is a retrospective cohort study done in the UK looking at people who were discharged alive after a stay in hospital for COVID. So these were people with severe or life-threatening illness. About a tenth of them, I think, had life-threatening illness and had been um, in critical care, in intensive care. Um, and they were predominantly treated in the first wave of COVID um, up, till, up till the summer. And they are matched with some people in the general population who didn't have COVID and didn't go to hospital around the same time. And what we're looking at are rates of hospital readmission, um, all-cause mortality and diagnoses involved in respiratory medicine, cardiovascular diagnoses, metabolic um, diagnoses, particularly diabetes um, 
chronic kidney disease and liver diseases up to around six months later. So before we come to Joe and Juan to understand more about the study, I'll just give you a few of the headlines. So about a third of the people who were discharged from hospital after this acute COVID infection were readmitted and about one in 10 of them died. And just as in the acute illness, we built up this picture that COVID was more than a respiratory illness. It was really getting into um, every corner of the body. That's kind of playing out in, in the more medium term. Um, and in particular, you can see increased rates of um, diabetes and adverse cardiovascular events, um, particularly being the most common of those. And all of that was more common in people who were over 70. So similar to the spectrum you're seeing in acute COVID, um, the, the people who are coming off the worst, um, being, being mirrored here in those kind of more medium term outcomes up to around six months. Um, Juan, you, I think it was you who spotted this paper. What, what drew you to it and what, what did you think of it? Well, I think that um, it's important uh, to uh, draw on the burden of the disease beyond the acute phase. We usually uh, read the headlines about mortality and how, m how much people end up in intensive care. But um, as a primary care physician, you, you, you want to know what happens when, when someone is discharged from the hospital, what's their prognosis. And, and I think that this paper um, highlights the importance of, 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 of understanding that, that, that people's um, organs and, and systems are, are, are suffering beyond the, the acute phase. And we need to be mindful that, that complications may arise uh, a longer-term follow-up. We still need to understand what those implications are in terms of surveillance, in, in the sense that what does is this different than any other person who's hospitalized due to pneumonia or other illnesses? But at least we need to be uh, vigilant of, of, of how these people are, 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 are after the, the hospital and... and and how we can accompany them. Yeah, that yeah. is quite fascinating, isn't it? Whether you're kind of whether you should be routinely monitoring people or calling them back or doing blood tests on them. And you raise this very interesting reflection of how does that compare to other people who've been to hospital? And that was something that the manuscript meeting at the BMJ thought quite carefully about when we're looking at the methods of this. Joe, do you remember that discussion around the the control groups and and what this should be compared to in order to be most helpful to clinicians. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I think you know the the point of papers like this is to really create kind of a constellation of evidence to help us better understand the symptoms. I mean, it's funny, right? This is such a critical topic of study going forward given the number of people who've been infected with this virus and really what drew, you know, grew out of patient reports of not feeling well continually, even after they quote unquote recovered from infection. And it's really uh, difficult to disentangle. We know that when people are hospitalized for any reason, there's a prolonged period of where they're not feeling great, where they're more likely to get admitted again, right? I mean, being admitted to the hospital is a marker for, for not being in great shape, right? So, but it's, so as a study, it's, it's, it's a difficult comparison to make, but in this particular study, you know, they used a huge population data set in order to try to match the people who had been admitted to the hospital for COVID to other patients who were not 
based on a whole range of characteristics, you know, in terms of their prior clinical history and their age and their demographics and all sorts of stuff. And, th- and from this, right, they inferred that, you know, the, the rates of coming back for new uh, admissions or, or physician visits for respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all these things were higher, which is like, hmm, why would that happen, right, with a, with a, you know, a viral infection like this? But this is a kind of a crazy virus and we're seeing kind of crazy things. You could imagine coming up with control groups of people who um, not only were hospitalized, but were uh, just, you know, had been admitted uh, for, I mean, had been diagnosed with the virus, right? But not admitted. That might be a better comparison group. You could identify, think about a comparison group as being people who got tested, but were negative versus tested who were positive. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to try to understand the burden of being infected with COVID. In this case, it's really focused on having been hospitalized for COVID and the long-term sequelae. But it's really, we what we really need to know as a society is what is the burden from just being infected? Because that's the vast majority of people, right, who are infected and never hospitalized. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think as you read it about how it might inform service design particularly, I guess, feeding into those additional clinics, which certainly are being set up here in the UK. I don't know what it's like where you are, um, particularly to deal with people with ongoing symptoms, these long COVID clinics. Um, I thought an interesting reflection that the researchers made was um, you're seeing the spectrum of different systems being um, affected here. So as those clinics are being set up, there seems to be a need to be able to refer to quite a a broad clinic that can look at you in quite a holistic way and perhaps also a need to be able to look at you quite quickly if you have a, a sort of I guess some kind of subacute problem um, versus looking at someone who might be needing care going forwards for many weeks or months. Well I mean in, in the United States I mean we're what we're what we do for certain types of uh, you know people who are admitted to the hospital older adults like people with heart failure that's much more of a sort of chronic management issue right we we make sure that they have a, a primary care visit within seven days of being discharged right that's that's like one of the quality goals we have here whereas with someone you know admitted for you know a urinary tract infection we would never make that such a high priority. Research like this is demonstrating that, you know, maybe we need to think about these clinics as being kind of routine visits post-hospitalization, right? Where if people survive to discharge, that we do routinely bring them back, kind of check in on on specific things. But all that is to say is we don't know if that will prevent it. We don't know if that will make a difference, right? But at the very least, we want to make sure we're providing kind of enough clinical support to our patients. I don't know what's happening, you know, where you are, Juan. Um, in, I think that um, um, follow-up after discharge is always a challenge uh, for a lot of co- uh, conditions, not only respiratory conditions. And, uh, and, and the care of these patients are usually quite heterogeneous, and, and, the, and most of the resources are basically not there. And, and, and when you think about um, setting up clinics, I think that it's very important to be mindful how this might impact of... Uh, of inequalities across health conditions in the sense that if you're discharged from COVID, you may go to a clinic uh, where you get intensive follow-up, but 
what happens if you get discharged from another condition? Uh, do you get the same follow-up care? So we have to be very careful when we think about how we think of a, a follow-up and, and, and integrated care uh, for specific conditions. And, and what's the evidence base for that? Okay, so his first podcast, and already he is a voice of reason. (laughs) (laughs) So next on this week's agenda, I think this is our most meaty topic that we're going to look at this week. So you should uh, get yourself a coffee and be prepared for some brain twisting. Chew it, yeah. (laughs) Due to our time zones, I'm having my kind of after lunch coffee, whereas you two have got much more sprightly brains earlier in the day. You're just just waking up. Um, So we've had lots of wonderful trials on vaccines, but we've still got quite a bit to learn about them and how we use them in the future. And certainly at BMJ, we're seeing this explosion of papers coming through to us now. And you can see them popping up on the preprint servers as well, looking at how well the vaccines are working um, in the real world, how well they may or may not be working in locations with different dominant variants, how they're working in different populations who might have been underrepresented in the original trials. And this particular focus, um, which is which has certainly been dominating the UK press, I don't know how it is where you guys are, with rare and adverse effects of vaccines, and in particular the AstraZeneca vaccine. And Joe, you spotted uh, this paper, which we published. I think a lot of other people have spotted it online. It's been very well accessed. <laughs> it's got a really catchy title. I'll read it for you in full because I like to you know, make sure you're awake. It's called Arterial Events, Venous Thromboembolism, thrombocytopenia and bleeding after vaccination with With Oxford AstraZeneca Chad Ox 1S in Denmark and Norway, a population-based cohort study. Joe, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a a terrific study as we begin to try to learn more around the safety of all of these vaccines that we're now administering. Because you know, as part of the regulator's approval process, right, you know, they're requiring these vaccine manufacturers to run clinical trials, they're systematically looking for adverse events. But these trials, even if they're of 10, 20,000 people, uh, the the incidence of kind of the rare adverse events that ha- wouldn't have come up in the sort of phase two smaller design studies, they're, st- they're, they're going to be hard to spot. And so this means we have to be thinking how can we use you know population data sources to better understand the safety of these vaccines? And it's tricky because you you know think about the sort of uneven rollout. Uh, you know where older adults, more at risk adults, are the ones getting the vaccine first. And so when even if you're trying to use you know good observational methods to control for confounding, maybe it looks like people uh, who got the vaccine are more likely to have certain adverse events, but that's just because they were at a higher clinical risk that we're not able to account for. Um, Of course, the other challenge when you're doing studies like this is it's really hard to do comparative, like people who got one vaccine versus another vaccine. There's a sort of conception that the mRNA vaccines have fewer safety concerns associated with it than the the, than like the J and J and AstraZeneca vaccines that are that and so but most places they only roll out one, right? So you can't really within a sort of a demography really compare rates. So in this case, I, I thought the investigators did a pretty excellent job given the limitations that they have at hand, where they looked at folks eighteen to sixty five. So they kind of take out the sort of highest risk uh, population. 
Um, and they compare the gen- use population data from Denmark and Norway uh, to compare the, the risk of these adverse events that you noted, you know, arterial events, venous thromboembolism, all the coagulation disorder and bleeding among those who were vaccinated, comparing the rates that they had observed in the population from like, you know, 2018, 2019 uh, to what was observed over 2020 when the vaccines are in 2021, when the vaccines were rolled out. And, um, you know, the, I think it's important that they all, not only did they look at what was being sort of cited and described in the world, these like thromboembolic events, but they looked at events that weren't. So they have both positive and negative controls to try to get a sense of, okay, well, they're seeing a slightly increased risk of, you know, I think the most concerning of them is, um, what was it? The um, the cerebral venous thrombosis. The cerebral events. venous thrombosis. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but you know, th- but when they're looking at other things, they're, they're not seeing any any increased risk. They're not seeing any increased risk of bleeding. Tell us about that-, that principle, Joe. This idea of positive and negative um, controls, because I think that's quite interesting. People might not know about that. Yeah, well, I think it's this is sort of becoming kind of like good hygiene and observational research, which is like, okay, I have a hypothesis. Uh, you know, that people who get drug A are more likely to have adverse event B, right? And so there's some theory behind it. Maybe there's some case reports behind it. And if I go just go and do the study and, you know, look at A by B and I see an increased risk, I'm like, haha, see, I proved my point no matter how good the method is. But I think it's really, you know, there's always unmeasured confounding in any observational data source. And you do all, the best that you can to try to account for it. But one really sort of clever thing to do is to say, okay, what's in an event C that should have absolutely no association with A or with B? And I'm going to include that in my and look for that association too and see and make sure that it comes up as no significant association, right? So common thing is like, okay, in a in, like in a drug adverse event study, you're going to see if there's a, any difference in having appendicitis, right? There should be no difference in appendicitis. Why would the drug cause appendicitis? Or, you know, no difference in, I don't know, like, you know, stubbing your toe, right? Say that that was, a, you know, had an ICD-10 uh, code for stubbing your toe. Well, there should be no difference in toe stubbing, right? So anyways, you you like work through with your team and identify what would be a reliable negative controls, right? And, and that gives you more confidence in the results. So what were the results here? Well, here, which I, I, I thought they did a nice job of characterizing both in terms of the figures, but also the absolute risk. You know, they demonstrate that, you know, there was no increased risk really of any of the arterial events. And um, while there was an increased risk of cerebral venous thrombosis, which is a very concerning adverse re- event because it's very severe, uh, most of the others were of no significant difference. There was clearly a mortality benefit, which is interesting, right? Because that means people who are getting vaccine are, are, are still are more likely to live longer. Um, and then some of the thro- thrombocytopenia bleeding events were a little bit sort of haphazard. But, you know, I think the takeaway message is there, there are some some risks associated with the vaccine along these sort of cardio sort of venothrombolic pathways. And then this becomes a question of sort of what to do about it and how to mitigate those risks. And that is the challenge that, you know, many governments are dealing with. Okay, so if this risk seems to be clustered within a certain population, you know, like in, in the United States, there's a lot of talk about the J&J vaccine and the, these, these thromboembolic risks that are much, much, much more likely to be seen among women between the ages of 18 and 50, do those women not get that vaccine? Because there are alternatives in the U.S. We can we can instead provide mRNA vaccines. You know, it, it, it becomes a policy discussion beyond the evidence discussion. 
in terms of the evidence, the benefits outweigh the risks without question, right? The benefits of, uh, you know, not only diminishing your own risk of getting COVID, but of diminishing the population risk. But there, there is individual risk associated with the vaccine. And so then it becomes a policy question, depending on what vaccines are available. And the best numbers that came out of here in terms of those those harms were just just to reinforce Joe the the um, smallness of those. It was eleven excess venous thromboembolic events per hundred thousand vaccines, um, and for that particular serious one that you were talking about, the cerebral venous thrombosis, that was an excess of two point five per hundred thousand vaccinations. And this, just as a reminder, is only linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine this paper um but it was it, it, it's interesting um Juan how do you read this from your position in primary care down down in Latin America what what did it say to you well um first of all in Latin America we, we still need to get the vaccines right so that's uh, there the, the other um uh, issues that 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 are, are pr- pr- probably more pressing than than this, but at the same time, I, I, we do get a lot of um, consultations by patients uh, with with uh, com, com, with higher risk of thrombosis that are concerned of receiving vaccine. And I think that the, this paper is, in that sense, is very reassuring that these events are are rare. And um, and but it's important to be accurate in the risk communication. Uh, I'm not sure if you you've been following uh, the media on this that there have been these infographics comparing the risk of getting uh, deep vein thrombosis uh, from uh, the birth control pill and versus the, the 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 vaccine. And that I think that that's a misrepresentation of of of. Uh, uh, of everything, basically, because it's not the same getting a sinus, uh, a thrombus in the, in the cerebral sinus uh, that could lead to brain injury. And uh, at the same time, um, we don't want to discourage people from taking the birth control pill if that's their choice. So um, I think it's it's tricky. We have to be very mindful of the communication around this and uh, and and being accurate at the same time as reassuring. And, and 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 at the same time, we need to think of the trade-off because, in general, the trade-offs are uh, are in favor of vaccinations. But that might not be the case if we stratify by age. So, uh, if eighteen-year-old woman might not uh, have the same benefits from from vaccine uh, compared to, to to the risk, depending on which vaccine it takes. But that involves and uh, a lot of uh, policy making around how to distribute vaccines and, and whom. Yeah, there's a lot to consider, isn't there? Um, I think the point that you were making um, at a population level, I think things are quite clear. But then when you boil it down to the individual, when you're the person going in to get the vaccination or you're the person answering phone calls from people wondering whether they should have the vaccination at all, wondering if they should have one versus another one, it's quite interesting. And something um, that I've heard uh, from colleagues who work down at the vaccination centres is there are there are situations, circumstances where people have a history or a family history of some of the adverse events um, that that are being linked to the vaccine. So maybe they've had a an MI before they've had a DVT or a pulmonary embolism or they've got a sort of family history of those things and understanding whether they should go ahead and have the vaccine for their first shot. If they've already had one, is it okay to then go and have the second one, given that nothing bad to them, nothing bad seems 
to have happened to them the first time round. Um, and that seems to me really tricky. And what you were saying, Joe, about the scale of this, to answer at a population level, we needed like these two countries to try and give us an answer. When you then start to drill down and say, well, what about people who have a history of DVT? It almost seems like an unanswerable question, like to, to even begin to assemble enough people who have a history of DVT <laughs> to answer that reliably. Do you think there are just some things about this where, where everyone to some extent is just going to have to take um, a degree of uncertainty in the answer in as it would apply to them? Well, I mean, it's uh, that's how everything in medicine is, right? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's the, the door, you know, the, the, the known unknowns versus the unknown unknowns or like, you know, you go with the sort of the, 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 the risk, you know, versus the risk you're imagining. Right. I mean, it's like it's just really hard to understand how people will weigh these various risks in their head, because the concept of getting infected with COVID is easy to understand. And maybe people have seen a lot of people have COVID and kind of feel miserable. Right. And so but the, the people who get like really sick, the, like the long COVID from the pr prior paper that we, we just talked about, you know, for those people who were hospitalized or even those people who were never hospitalized, you know, that's a hard risk to conceptualize. Whereas like, OK, I get this vaccine and now I know I have a, you know, a two, you know, and a th hundred thousand chance of having, you know, event that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Like, is that high? Is that low? You know, like, what do you, you know? Venous thromboembolism is very treatable, like, but, you know, the cerebral one is, is very dangerous. So how do you weigh that? I mean, you just hear these numbers, some of which are actually very manageable illnesses that, you know, people can then get treated for. And we have no idea how long it even persists for after the initial event. Right. I mean, like, have you changed that person's risk forever or just, you know, for in, in an acute phase? There's just so many unknowns and you know, people are going to have to make the best decision with their with their GP on what to do next. Right. Take a big sip of your coffee now, everyone, and take a deep breath out. But <laughs> before we leave vaccines, so I also said that we were looking at a lot of papers linked to, linked to vaccines at BMJ, and I don't know whether that's the same for you, Juan, on the uh, EBM journal. But, Joe, give us a sense, because a lot of these are observational data thoroughly in your purview of interest just give us the themes if you're seeing things popping up on preprints or in other journals or in the bmj or wherever it is what are the broad themes of um difficulties with these papers so we've been you know i think we've seen particularly early on kind of two types of you know post-vaccination safety papers one are the kind of single center studies here are people we vaccinated you know, we we saw to see, we looked to see whether they were admitted to the hospital or not, um, and others being the kind of uh, like almost survey based studies. Like, you know, what did people report back? Um, you know, did they say that they had problems? Did they say, you know, that, that, and you know, so, and then I would say the third is we got, there was all these sort of adverse event reporting system papers, right, where people just sort of combed through those and said, ah, look, look at how often we're seeing, you know, mumps and bumps and you know groans from people who are who are getting the vaccine, and clearly this is a vaccine that people have a you know immediate reaction to. When when we're looking for the higher quality papers, we're looking for larger studies, population based studies, so you're getting the sort of whole swath inability to sort of risk standardize using other information about the people like their demographics and their clinical information, 
right? And, you know, ideally you want, like, for a period of time, you don't want to just sort of know what happened over the first 30 days. Really, you know, the goal is to, to look over over a period and, to, you know, over 60 days, over six months, whatever whatever it is. But um, they're gonna, they're, there's going to be a lot of these studies as people try to figure out, you know, with their best guesses, sort of what are the risks associated with the vaccine. Um, and we'll do our best to evaluate them and only bring the highest quality ones through the BMJ. <laughs> and only the highest, highest quality ones to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So our final bit of COVID for this podcast is a paper looking at how well used the UK's test, trace and isolate system has been. Around the world, people have relied on these systems. The idea that you test, trace, isolate, you separate out infected people from people who don't have infection and you stop the spread of COVID. Um, and I think that's that's a kind of established public health and infectious disease principle. But the whole thing really stands or falls on how well people either want to or actually can in reality adhere to that guidance um, on testing, providing contact details, on being able to complete the isolation period. Um, And that's obviously linked to knowledge and motivation and your opportunity to do so. And in the UK, we've had this sense of an emerging picture Um, although politicians like to praise us quite a lot for our hard work, that maybe we could do better here. (laughs) Um, And this paper, I guess, to some extent, reports a little bit on how well we've done. And Joe, you spotted it. And I sort of, I got that feeling a bit like reading a school report or some kind of personality test on your behaviour, sort of, but also everyone else's behaviour as well. Did you you feel criticised by this paper, Helen? (laughs) Do you know, to some extent I did, because I've had to test, trace and isolate a number of times in the UK. Okay. And so it's always a bit painful, isn't it? To re- it's a bit like 360 degree feedback. Um, but but this isn't just for people. It's, I think it's very important to say this is also for politicians because it's not just your understanding as an individual or your, um, your ability um, to understand the information. It's also about the opportunity and the environment that you're in and whether you can actually do what's being asked of you. So... Um, Joe, do you want to tell us a bit about this study? Yeah, because I so, feel like I've got a conflict of interest having had to isolate and also being in the UK. So no, you, no, can, we, you we, can you we, can read us our report. We all have a, a conflict of interest, and and actually, because we're all subject to this, and that's why I absolutely love this paper. You know, this is like the sort of bread and butter strategy of public health. Like you know, right? We contract, we trace. You know, we do all this stuff. Um, we test, trace, isolate. Test, trace, isolate. That's that's what public health experts do in the context of a communicable disease like this. And, you know, but it never gets studied, right? Nobody really knows how how well it is. When this paper came into the BMJ, I immediately thought that, oh, this is probably well known that nobody actually, you know, recognizes when they're supposed to contact public health officials. Nobody actually, you know, adheres to it. And but there's no evidence out there, really. I mean, there's a couple of isolated studies here and there throughout, like, the history of other infectious diseases, and actually, one little funny tidbit. So, you know, the, the the term communicable disease that we all you know now think of as, you know, meaning, you know, infectious disease. The reason they're called communicable diseases is because they were diseases you were supposed to communicate to your public health department that you had and that you would then stay home. Oh. So, so I did like, not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like so this I thought was just super clever, which is like, you know, they did kind of like panel wave surveys of telephones, you know, week after week after week after week throughout like 
the greatest pandemic of most of every living person's lifetime. The one where everyone is supposed to... Pause, pause and tell us about the, the panel wave survey thing, because people reading this might be a bit suspicious that if you're doing a survey and you're reading it in the BMJ, you would expect to see this kind of defined sampling happening and a good response rate, at least over 70. But this is different. This is called quota sampling. So just just tell us what that is. Is that okay? Yeah. This is like this is like the type of surveys that happen in election polling or for advertising and marketing, you know, where you're trying to sort of identify people, answer a couple of questions and sort of like take the pulse of public opinion, right? So this is like a pulse of public opinion survey. It's not as, you know, perfectly executed, but it what it suffers from in terms of like the kind of rigor that we look for in scientific research it gains from in, in its breadth, its representativeness and sort of like how, you know, how it's supposed to be, you know, and how it sort of represents the, the broader pa pa population of people, which is what you want when you're trying to understand how people are adhering to public health strategies. Go on, then break right? the news to us. Well, it, it's uh, it's quite awful. And it's probably better here than like in most places around the world. Right. But, you know, essentially what they contacted people and said, you know, what are the symptoms of covid? And this is, again, over the entire uh, period of time, what was it, you know, 37 survey waves beginning in March 2020, ending at the very end of January 2021. And basically about half of people uh, were able to accurately identify the symptoms of COVID. <laughs> half. Right? So half I mean, were not. Half were not. <laughs> right. So that's a that makes, you know, sort of isolating self-isolation uh, really tricky. Right. If people don't even know what the symptoms are. And then they looked at, well, you know, how if you were supposed to go get tested, um, you know, when you had symptoms, did you go and do that? And that like was about one fifth of people would go and do that. Or if you got a positive test. Would you isolate? And people were like, of course I would isolate. 80% of people said, of course I would isolate. But then when you looked at the the behavior of people who were supposed to be isolating, it was only like 20 or 30% or something like that. Let me find the exact number because now I'm, I'm just sort of, yeah, it was about 20, 20%. Uh, yes, now I'm interested in precision. But I mean, what I thought this did was just show how challenging it is to manage public health populations for an infectious disease that's spreading rapidly, um, even, you know, it, it, with good communication strategies, you know, that are clear, you know, in, in a place like the UK. So mm. that, that, that's why I found this. Well, I always like papers that sort of reaffirm your own bias. And I, I definitely think an observation of mine is that in general conversation with, with people out and about who are not necessarily doctors or healthcare workers who probably have it drummed into them those three symptoms that they picked as the core covid ones to trigger you getting tested and isolating i just don't i still don't think they're that well implanted in people's minds um or certainly not understanding that you don't have to have all three of them any right. single one of those things. Yeah, and they looked at cough, high temperature, fever, and loss of sense of smell or taste, right? The sort of cardinal sort of yeah. symptoms. Although they are challenging. I, I do remember actually, I, I wrote a blog piece right near the beginning of the pandemic asking what what is a new and continuous cough? It's a bit of a philosophical question for you, but <laughs> but there we are. Um, I think they did define it a bit better after that, um, but um, not after my blog post, but in general, because I think no one understood what that was. Um, Juan, what were your thoughts on this? Well, uh, I think that there are there are a couple of points that are very interesting. Uh, one has to do with uh, 
how reliant we are on the assumptions of, of what people do to consider that some interventions are effective. So let's imagine if we had this uh, track trace and isolate strategy and we want to run a trial and we're looking for a funder and you say, okay, and the funder says, okay, let's uh, show me that this intervention is feasible and people would hear, adhere to it. And you run this poll and this, these are the numbers. So you say, why, why should I fund research on this when people behavior are not going to support it but uh we we're at the other end of the line here so this intervention is already implemented and we're seeing how how it might not work uh that's the first point the um, the second point I, I found interesting is that uh what are the incentives for people not getting tested or not isolating so um as you said when you talk to people and when you talk to patients sometimes they have uh, mild symptoms and and there's there's also the, the the stigma of being with covid you you tell your relatives your friends and and and, and in the middle of the pandemic a lot of people are afraid you being someone that could spread the disease to them it's not a very pleasant uh feeling and and a lot of people uh, consciously or unconsciously want to avoid that diagnosis and uh, and the third point I think is w- how much we expect policy to be reliant on individuals behavior and uh, in general all these um, uh, all these interventions that 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 require people to to adhere to very complex rules tend to fail unless there are cultural aspects to that that support that so in Asia, they, they have stricter rules as to how to isolate. That might not be feasible in some countries uh, uh, in the West where people might not uh, be willing to, to isolate because they might end up in jail. So um, there, there, there are several points. That is being isolated. Yeah. <laughs> that is being very isolated. But then maybe together with a lot of other people in isolation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and I guess what stigma. is interesting what is interesting about this paper is it it puts in your mind almost more questions, doesn't it? And um yeah. I guess really the big question is is why, isn't it? Why 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 is people's understanding of those core three symptoms um not as good as it should be? Why do people not want to go and get tested and why is it not feasible or, or desirable for them to isolate? Um, and, and I think that would be such a, that would be a very fascinating study, isn't it? So yeah. to, to look, take a qualitative look behind um, what was going on in people's minds there. No, it, I think the issue around getting tested, particularly in the beginning phases where people may have wanted to get tested, but couldn't, uh, Right. You know, that that's tricky. That's tricky, too. Um, but, you know, I think what what you see is that uh, a lot of people who probably should have been isolating, should have been getting tested, weren't. Uh, and and that that's the challenge that public health has to deal with right now. And, and in, in many countries still where vaccines have not rolled out. Right. This is still remains the sort of pillar strategies for controlling the infection in the population. These are relatively simple strategies. You know, I say simple in the sense that it doesn't involve you know, a costly medical inter- intervention, but uh, um, but they're hard to do. So our final topic kind of takes a step away from COVID. Um 
Juan, you spotted this really nice paper on on treating depression in people with dementia. And I think that is a population of of people who've been quite adversely affected during the pandemic. I think a lot of people have suffered with um with low mood and and worsening of that. And often um know people more so than those who are in care homes or nursing homes with diagnoses like dementia. Um, so it's a great topic. Um, and uh, tell us tell us a bit more about the paper first. So this is a massive undertaking. Uh, they did a systematic review with network analysis, including 256 studies with over 28,000 people with dementia. And uh, they... Um, assess the effectiveness of, um, of non-pharmacological interventions, uh, including cognitive stimulation, massage and touch therapy, occupational therapy, and others, um, compared to drug interventions. It's uh, interesting to highlight that the same group uh, conducted uh, uh, another systematic review um, highlighting that uh, drugs in general may cause little to no difference in terms of uh, of the improvement of depressive symptoms in, in people with dementia. So it was very important to know which alternatives do, do you have, right? So um, in this case, uh, these are somewhat um, good news in terms of identifying that some of this intervention may work. And using the network analysis, they were able to compare interventions that were not initially compared in each individual study, So, um, which is more similar to what uh, physicians face when uh, thinking of about interventions, they, they they don't think interventions A versus interventions B, but from all available interventions, which are the ones that are effective. And network analysis sort of uh, is is a method that allows you to think a little bit more like the the, the ph- physician at the point of care. So, what they found is that uh, some interventions, including cognitive stimulation, massage and touch therapy, um, exercise. Uh, uh, combined with uh, social interaction and cognitive stimulation, are effective in reducing symptoms of depression, and um, and and this is and, and with interest in uh, effect sizes, right? So uh, uh, two or three times uh, the minimal important difference uh, in some in some cases, and 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 these uh, these are very good news, especially for people who might um, be having um, greater symptoms of depression in the context of the pandemic as well. That was very useful, Juan, and very succinct. I think this idea of network meta-analysis and addressing comparative effectiveness of lots of different interventions is really appealing. Um, I guess it's useful now to think, having read all that, what do you think it means for care of people um, that you deliver? Could you go away? I guess what you're saying to me is that the non-pharmaceutical interventions looked more promising. Is that something you could go away and and achieve for your patients? Well, maybe I can jump in. Uh, so, uh, Helen, I'm not sure if you realize my wife is a, is a geriatrician who does a lot of dementia care. And uh-huh. so in many ways, this paper, you know, sort of represents the challenges, you know, that she faces when taking care of her patients, right? Because, you know, it, it's it's just so hard, right? You know, is the dementia being worsened by the depression or exacerbated by the depression? Like what to do first? And one of the things that I found appealing about this paper is it suggests to start at the very least start with the non-pharmacologic interventions, right? 
these interventions have value in not just looking like they're effective, but increasing kind of social opportunities, getting people out. You know, it's not just taking a medicine while you're sitting by yourself, right? You're you're visiting a massage therapist. You're you know you're talking to somebody for you know like for cognitive stimulation, like all of these things. You know, you're it, it's engaging you. So there, there, it's reasonable to think that this may be also better for your dementia as it is better for your depression. Um, and that puts the sort of drug therapies into, into sort of a second tier. Um, but I mean, obviously, this is just a patient population that's just very difficult to manage. And that was something you spotted, uh, Juan, as a kind of methodological point that the scale that a lot of these interventions were being measured on was one for depression. Um, but actually, this is a, a condition with both with dementia and depression where the symptoms can be similar, can overlap. and and actually what you're aiming for is maybe a more holistic picture of care where you're trying to increase the well-being and interaction and opportunities for that person um, at quite an advanced level of their life. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the way you measure uh, depressive symptoms in people with dementia is different from, from the general population. And if you look at the scales, they include a wide variety of symptoms that are basically the symptoms of dementia. So... In general, um, when you think about caring for, for someone with dementia, it's, it's good to think that you can start doing something. And another advantage of these non-pharmacological interventions are the, these interventions are quite safe in general. But there are some challenges, challenges of course, because uh, some of these interventions are um, in groups or sometimes face-to-face -face or in um, uh, uh, massage and, and touch therapy includes very close contact. And in this context, it's sort of, uh, very difficult because of the pandemic how to how to deliver them and uh, and and we have to be very creative on how we can transform them these interventions and at the same time maintain maintaining the, the effectiveness because if we think of that that cognitive stimulation delivered in person would be the same as 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 doing a, a zoom meeting uh, and it, it, it might not be the same especially for elderly adults Well, that's all we have time for this week. If you've enjoyed the discussions we've had, uh, you might want to go back and listen to two particular episodes, which kind of link tangentially to what we've been talking about today. One was uh, one on public health messaging and how important it is to check that people understand the messages that you're putting out. And I couldn't help but think of that when we were talking about those three symptoms of COVID. And the other one um, was listening to Alison Pollock talking about the necessity to really provide strong support for people to be enabled to isolate, um, which, which really pairs up nicely with that test, trace and isolate paper. So if you're interested in hearing more, do go back and listen to those episodes. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye for me. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Duncan and Juan. This was great. Good to do this with you. Bye and for you me. Thanks, everyone. Good. Did you make it through your first podcast okay, Juan? Yeah, yeah. Will you come back to our listeners again? Well, you have me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Goodbye for now. Bye.